So uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them up. I'll open your Bibles, or if you have apps, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we begin this series in the Ten Commandments. As you're turning there, I talk to you about some historically developing realities in our country. So in, in May of 2008, Newsweek released an article called Searching for a Holy Spirit. And in that article, uh, it, was, it, it involved interviews of various people who um, just understood what was going on with the reality of youth and how their beliefs about God were being formed and shaped. So, uh, so in this article, a girl who is 16, raised Catholic, is in Catholic school. She's asked what she thinks, and she admits that her view may not be about God, may not be traditional. This is what she says. She says, I believe in Darwin's theory of evolution and the possibility of God being a woman. I never believed in the story of Adam and Eve because it was so demeaning towards women. She does, however, believe in prayer and karma. So that's interesting. It gives you an idea of beliefs in God. Even with somebody being raised in a situation where they're told something very different, the beliefs in God are developing in maybe a not-so-helpful way. So then Rob Reno. Rob Reno it was a pastor at, was a pastor at uh, Wheaton Bible Church, and he, uh, he was interviewed for this Newsweek article in 2008. Wheaton Bible Church is just down uh, the road about 10 miles from here. Um, so, so Rob was interviewed, and, and uh, he asked what he did was he asked a group of kids from troubled homes questions about God, and, and that one of the key questions was, who do you think God is? So, um, so listen to their responses. One thought God was like his grandfather. He said, he's there, but I never see him. Another took a harder view, describing an evil being who wants to punish me all the time. Two more opinions followed, and then finally the last teen weighed in, and he said, I think you're all right, because that's what you really believe. In other words, as Reno relates it, God is whatever works for you. And no matter what they believed about God on this singular reality, all of the youths agreed. God is whatever works for you. So now fast forward to to 2018. Barna did a study on beliefs about morality by generation. And so as people try to determine what is right and wrong, let's look at Gen Z and millennials. That's the orange and the blue lines that you see there, the orange and the blue numbers. There are two categories here for how people determine what is right and wrong that's presented for us. And so one of them says what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. The other one says... What is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. If you combine the numbers between those two from, for Gen Z and millennials, if you combine those two groups of numbers, what you discover is that nearly 50% of Gen Z and nearly 50% of millennials agree that what is right or wrong is either determined by society or by what an individual believes. So 50% agree that there is no objective standard for morality. Now we're going to, those two developing situations, fast forward 
to last Sunday. Now, I, I don't know how many of you know what happened last Sunday, but I will explain to you what happened. The 117th Congress was uh, confirmed, was installed, and uh, up there in front of all of the Congress, they have somebody pray. Well, a, a representative, Representative Cleaver, got up and prayed for the 117th Congress as he installed it. And you may be very familiar with the fact, if you've watched the news, you may be familiar with the fact that he ended his prayer with amen and all women. That's how he ended his prayer. And you might go, okay, this guy is nuts. He doesn't actually know what the word amen means. Uh, In follow-up interviews, we discovered actually he did know what he was saying. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was full of intention. There, I'm not actually going to talk about that amen and all women. A lot of people have talked about that. If you want to hear about it, go look on the internet somewhere. I'm going to focus on a different part of his prayer. Because what he said in his prayer was something very specific. When he prayed at the end of his prayer and he was asking things from God, this is what he said. He said, we ask it in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many different names and many different faiths. This guy was ordained in uh, the Methodist denomination. This guy has the title of Christian pastor or Christian leader. He has uh, a master of divinity. He has all of these things that, that tell us that he should be a reasonable Christian leader in what he prays. The most concerning th- part about what he said was not the ending of his prayer. It was the middle of his prayer when he says, we pray to the monotheistic God Brahma and God known by many different names and many different faiths. So I want to make an observation And that observation is that there seems to be a massive amount of cultural confusion around a core question. Who is God and what does he desire? Who is God and what does he desire? Almost every person who admits a certain lack of clarity with regards to that question, they agree with one thing. All of the people who have some level of confusion about that question, who is God and what does he desire, they agree about one thing. They all agree that it is wrong to speak with clarity about who he is and what he desires. They, they all agree this, and so that's how you get to last Sunday when this guy prays. Well, we'll pray a, a blanket prayer that kind of covers all the religions and includes all of those because we want to be inclusive because it would be wrong to exclude anybody. Especially, so, so it's wrong to be clear about God, especially if your clarity about God would lead to you marginalizing someone who has a different viewpoint. So I want to go forward into our study of the first commandment this morning with an, uh, a kind of unanswered question. One of the most important questions that needs to be answered in our day is this. Can we really know with clarity who God is and what he desires? Because that is the question that is resident in our culture. That is the unanswered question. That is, uh, people are, are coming up with alternative answers to that question. They think the answer to this question is no. But can we really know with clarity who God is and what he desires? So, so it's incredibly valuable and timely that we would be going into a series on the Ten Commandments this morning. Over the next uh, ten weeks, we'll be walking through Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And, and what is happening 
on this singular day in history when God comes to his people and provides his commands for them, what is happening is one of the most earth-shattering events in all of history. Like, the morality that is established in these commandments become the basis of morality for Western society. Um, It's called the Judeo-Christian ethic, right? You've probably heard that word before. This is the foundation of morality in Western civilization, in Western philosophy and government. Uh, And and even though we might be trying to remove God today, the, the, the... uh, kind of effects of this still are hanging over in our society even today. So in the context of Exodus, as we move forward, I think we have to understand something because when you remove something from it, its context, uh, you, you end up being able to do kind of whatever you want to do with it. So we need to consider Exodus uh, in its context. We need to consider the Ten Commandments in its context. And so what are the Ten Commandments for the people of Israel in the book of Exodus? The Ten Commandments are essentially foundational principles. God's providing his principles of something called the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant, we call it the Mosaic Covenant because it comes from a guy named Moses, right? Moses went up to God. God gives Moses the two tablets of the law, and Moses brings them to the people. That's the idea that we have. And So the Mosaic Covenant is this. I want to give us a broad definition. It is the conditions that Israelites must meet to remain God's favored nation among the nations. So the Israelites are coming to this mountain. They're meeting now with God. God is introducing himself after he has saved them out of the land of Egypt. He has uh, kind of confronted all of the Egyptian gods and put them to shame. He opened up the Red Sea. He did these miraculous things to save the people of Israel. And now we come upon this this situation where now God is introducing himself to his people. And so in Exodus 19, 4 and 5, we talked about Exodus 19 all the way back in the fall before we push pause in Exodus. He says this in verses 4 and 5. Sorry, 5 and 6. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, there's the condition, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So as we look at the people of Israel, like the way that they were going to continue to be God's favored people, God's special people, that God was going to set them apart from all the other nations, that he would be bringing blessing to them, the the way that it was going to happen is that they were going to meet these conditions that God provides. So now as we read the Ten Commandments, we quickly realize that they're much bigger than just uh, these conditions for Israelites. But we actually, they they encompass something much larger than that. So so let's look at the purpose of the Ten Commandments for Israelites, for Old Testament Israel. That's something we're going to look at. Now we already established one. It, It establishes a nation. Like the Ten Commandments establish, they're the conditions that establish a nation. But as we read the Ten Commandments, we discover that they go further beyond that, the purpose of the Ten Commandments. The second thing that they do is they reveal God and His values. The Ten Commandments show us that uh, God has a certain way of thinking about things, that He, he has a certain desires for humanity, the things that He loves to see. Um, they, for the Israelites, 
the Ten Commandments reveal sin. Reveals where the Israelites were missing things, where they were falling short. And like sin, sin was already present in the Israelites before the Ten Commandments came around, but now God gives his law so that they can actually see where they're falling short. And the fourth thing, the fourth purpose of the Ten Commandments is that they reveal the need for a remedy. So as you read the Mosaic Covenant, which doesn't end at the end of the Ten Commandments, it goes through to to chapter 23. What you read is uh, there are requirements of blood when people fall short of meeting these commandments. There's a need for a remedy. Something must uh, meet God's demands if you fall short. So then, so then what are we to do with this? What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments for New Testament Christians? And as we talk about Old Testament and New Testament, we're talking about uh, kind of the time before Christ, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the time after Christ, the New Testament, the New Covenant. So the purpose of the Ten Commandments for Christians, well, it's very similar to the purpose of the Ten Commandments for Israelites. They, they reveal God and his values to us. They show us what God loves. What are the principles that kind of form the foundation of what God looks for, what God hopes for, for humanity, what he values? They reveal to us sin. The Ten Commandments actually show us where we fall short of God's standard. And then they finally point us to the remedy. As we are Christians, as we reflect on these words about God, they, repoint, uh, they point us to the remedy for sin, which is the blood of Jesus. So you might notice that something is missing there because uh, they establish a nation in the first one, but they don't establish a nation in the second one. So, so what's going on with this? Uh, how does God establish a distinct and favored people now, today. Because if this is, if the Ten Commandments were God's way of making a people for himself, how does he make a people for himself now? Well, what we learn as we read the New Testament is that Jesus fulfilled the law in our place. Jesus covered our sin with his blood, and then what he did is he sent his spirit to live in people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, not just one nation, And his blood actually makes it possible for him to come take up residence inside of us and write his law on our hearts. The law of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So why do I say all of that? Because we are different from the Israelites. We are different in the Israelites in that our law, our obedience to the law does not condition our acceptance with God. Our obedience to the law does not condition our acceptance with God or his gift of salvation. If it does, we're all in trouble. Because as we go through the Ten Commandments, we'll discover how desperately far we fall short. But it is Jesus' blood, his fulfillment of the law, that establishes our acceptance with God as his favored people. That's the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant, Old Testament and New Testament. But the commandments still have great purpose for us. They still reveal God and his values. They still reveal sin. They still point us to the remedy for sin, the blood of Jesus. They still do all of that. So I say all of this because these distinctions are really important to make because you will run into people who will say, well, why don't you keep the Sabbath to the T? 
Why don't you follow all the laws to all the degrees, all the Old Testament laws to all the degrees? And, and there's a reason, because our acceptance with God is not conditioned on our performance of the law, but the Ten Commandments reveal to us principles that, that show us how we are to actually live out this law of love that God has written on our hearts. So why study the Ten Commandments? The, so as your pastor, I want to like just give you some prayed for outcomes. Like you want to know what I'm praying for as we go through this series. These are the four things that I am praying for. Number one, I want to undo misconceptions about God and his values. I hope the Holy Spirit will come and rewire our hearts and undo misconceptions about God and what he values. There are cultural misconceptions. Our culture is actually fighting to get us to see God differently than God actually presents himself. So I want to undo that. The second thing I hope happens is that the Holy Spirit will well up gratitude in your soul that you have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus because you fall desperately short and it is only Jesus' blood that can save you. Number three, I hope that the Holy Spirit will actually uh, help us gain missional motivation and training. That as we go through the Ten Commandments, we would learn how to converse with people who are shaped by the society that we live in right now. That we would learn what it means to even talk to them about who God is and what he desires. And then the fourth thing that I hope will happen is that as we go through the Ten Commandments, it will actually increase our cooperation with the Spirit. Because we'll see the principles that God is aiming for, the kind of people that he is trying to shape us into, and we'll actually go, okay, we see that now, and we want to work together with you. So that's my hope. That's what I am praying for in the midst of this. Now, to accomplish this, each week, we are going to kind of filter the Ten Commandments through two questions. The first question is, what does this mean for the Old Testament Israelite? And the second question is, okay, if that's what it meant for the Israelite, what does it mean for us as New Testament Christians? Because the, the Ten Commandments, they provide principles that will work themselves out differently in different contexts. But the so the application of the principle for us now will look different than the application of the principle for Old Testament Israelites. And so we're going to kind of filter through those two questions. So that was a lot of preparation for how we're going to be engaging the Ten Commandments and what it even means for us to engage the Ten Commandments. So the first question then is, what did this mean for the Old Testament Israelites? Exodus 20, 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying... So the words that are about to follow are God's uh, words that God promised he would give in Exodus chapter 19. He says, I'm going to give you words. I'm going to call you to obedience. And so these words, they're laying out the conditions by which Israelites would uh, be established as God's favored nation among nations. Right? They, that's the words that he's getting ready to read. Verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So a quick review. Whenever you see capital L-O-R-D in your translations, what it's doing is that's actually the name of God, Yahweh, uh, Y-H-W-H, right? This is the Lord saying, this is my name. I am Yahweh. Literally, I am, I am. So, so two things to notice about this. Number one, when he says your, 
we here, all of you. Well, so I am the Lord, your God. I am all of your God. But actually what he's saying is, I am each individual's God. He's saying, I am your God, specifically you. I am your God, and I am your God, you Israelite. This is about the individual Israelite. So there are corporate implications of the Ten Commandments, but they have individual implementation. Like you don't get the corporate implications without individuals actually putting this into practice. And so, uh, so your, number two, he is the God of every single Israelite, which is significant because they were coming out of the land of Egypt. So coming out of the land of Egypt, let's talk about what Egyptian gods were. Egyptian gods were tangible. They were multiple. They were powerful and they were understandable. So, so as you go into Egypt, you see gods that uh, you can, they're, they're statues, right? You can see them. You can actually touch your gods. You can uh, put things at the feet of your gods. They have faces. You can understand who they are. They are multiple in that, that there's more than one of them. Like, in fact, you have gods for all sorts of different things in, in Egypt. They are powerful, and you witness the ways that they perform uh, various acts. Like, there, there are ceremonies for healing that the Egyptians would undergo. You witness just even the power of the gods and how mighty the nation of Egypt is, right? That's how you can tell the, the power of gods, typically, is when a nation is more powerful than other nations, that means that their gods are really, really powerful. That's what they took it to mean. And they are understandable in that, like, you could do very specific things for your gods and get very specific outcomes. That's how the gods worked. But Yahweh completely rewires all of that for Israel. Yahweh is intangible. He doesn't have a face. Like, yes, he's going in front of them in this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire, but there is, like, you don't see his body, you don't see his representation. Like, he is intangible. He is singular for them. Meaning, like, he is not multiple. You don't go to many places, but you go to one place. He is all-powerful. He showed this in putting to shame the Egyptian gods. By bringing the plagues to Egypt, he showed his power over those powerful gods, and he made them look very weak. And he is complex. Meaning that you might think you understand God. You might be inclined to think that you can even manipulate God by doing certain things to get certain outcomes. But what we discover is that God himself does not abide by our expectations. So, so God has shown up for them in a powerful way, and now he's flipping their whole understanding of the world on its head. So he gives this first command in verse 3. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. So just a general concept about laws. Laws are given. Law is given because of our propensity to do the opposite, right? Like we have to be told not to do something because we are probably going to do that thing. So uh, I don't know how many of you drive on Highway 20, uh, but if you look, you will see many signs that say 45 miles an hour over and over and over again. Why do you see those signs? Because everybody is prone to drive 75 miles an hour on Highway 20, right? Like, I don't, that you have to tell people to slow down, right? That's why speed limits exist, because if they didn't, people would die. Like, uh, 
swearing at the witness stand. When, when you come into court, you, they, they give you a Bible, that you put your hand on the Bible and you say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Do you know why they do that? Because people will be prone to lie on the witness stand if it endangers them, right? So you, we have to remind you, you, you will break the law if you lie in this situation. So, so there's something about us that often we know what is right, but we choose what is wrong, especially if we know that there won't be any consequences. So, so if, the, if that's true, then it means that human beings, if, the, if this is the law that we're given, the very first law that we're given, it means that human beings have a propensity to seek after that which is not God and make that thing God to seek after things which are not God for our authority, to seek after that which is not God to to give us direction, to seek after that which is not God to uh, empower us, to give our life meaning, to give us identity, to determine our significance. Like we are so broken that we have a creator who is extending those things to us and we are ignoring him and searching for those things in other places. So polytheism was so appealing in the culture that existed because it gave so many seemingly valid ways to find authority and direction and power and meaning and significance. You could go, like, if you can't find your meaning and significance and your power with the river God, you know what? There's a fertility God that you can go to and you can try to find meaning and significance and authority there. Or if you don't like that, you could go to the war God and you could let that God be your authority and determine what direction you go in. So, so not only does polytheism kind of naturally fit with broken human desires, but, but it also happens to be a part of the cultural and religious air that the Israelites were breathing. Like everywhere they looked, this is just how people acted. This is how they operated. So since they were young, they watched people kind of just choose whatever God they needed for whatever situation to base, uh, you know, what, base on what they were seeking at the time. Individuals just picking, like, oh, this is what I want today, so this is the God I'm going to go to. So then Yahweh comes to them, and he saves them out of Egypt. He shows his power to them. He puts to shame those gods. He takes them through the Red Sea. He protects them in the desert. He provides for them, and then he says to them, no more, no more. You might be inclined to think that his command about no more, as you read it, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And it's really easy to read that and think, like in terms of priority, like uh, you shall have no other gods because I'm first. So if you have other gods, it's okay just as long as I stay first. You might be inclined to think that, but the words before me actually literally mean in my presence. So, So what he's saying, he's telling Israel, by the way, his presence, if you're uh, an Israelite, you're Yahweh. His presence is everywhere. Everywhere is before his face. So he's saying the very existence of other gods for you is an abomination. It's destructive because those things are not gods at all. They cannot possibly sustain what it means to be gods. And so to call them such is an affront to me. 
So with this, he, he makes something clear. With this word that he gives to them, he makes something clear. He makes, makes clear that other, all other gods are false gods. They are either illusions or they are demonic. But to call them gods is not a real representation of what they are. All other gods are insufficient to provide what you are seeking from them. So every single one of the Egyptian gods that they would go to, uh, they would seek after those gods. But what they would discover is that those gods could not actually provide everything that they were seeking. And so because of that, all other gods are unworthy of your seeking. Therefore, no other god shall be called your god. I alone am your god. So he's saying to the Israelites, you know what? Uh, you are prone to because of the cultural and religious air that you breathe, because of the way that you are even just shaped and broken in your heart. You are prone to derive your meaning and your authority and your significance from all of these multiple places, whatever you decide you need at the time. I'm here to tell you with clarity, I am now the only one that you should seek to find those things. So you might ask the question, like, why is God so staunch on this? Like, why? This is the first commandment. Not only that, though. Like, we see this command reiterated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 is a prayer that Jewish people still read today every time they engage with God. It's called the Shema. It literally means to listen or hear, listen up. This is important. They repeat it over and over and over again. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. God cares desperately about and deeply about this commandment. Why? Because if you get this commandment wrong, none of the others matter. Like, if you take on another God... You're just going to do what that God says. Like, think, think of the brokenness in the world up to this point as we've, like, watched the story of even the earth through from Genesis up to this point and Exodus. Like, what have we seen? Well, we've seen Sodom and Gomorrah and the incredible evil that occurred in that place. We have seen people murdering other people. We've seen wars and nations rising up against each other. We watched Egypt, who did this systematic oppression of, uh, of particular people groups all the way through. We have seen the world fall apart heart into brokenness. All of it starts with the breaking of the first command. All of it starts with determining that there is another authority besides the true creator. So church, we witnessed a lot of stuff happen in our world this week, in our country this week. And you might look at our country and you might actually be really concerned because I think what is happening is we're seeing just factions in our country fracture. We're seeing the fracturing of what we might even call American unity or something along those lines. We are, we are seeing things seemingly falling apart. I want to ask a question, why is that happening? Part of the reason that it's happening is because people have decided that they are going to find their authority 
from something else. They're going to find their meaning from something else. They're going to find their significance from something else. They're going to go to their favorite news network and find it there. They're going to go to their favorite figurehead or uh, personality and find it there. They're going to go to their favorite internet feed and find it there. But people are finding their meaning and significance from any other place besides the place it has been defined that we should find it. That's how we get to the situation that we're in today. Every bit of wickedness that has ever existed in history starts with deciding that something other than God is God. So, so where these Israelites live, with their past, with the things that they have formed them, a lot of gods to choose from, God comes and says, and this is what we need to take. Here is our main point this morning. The God of the Bible is the only God. We need to know that with clarity. We cannot uh, make any allowances about this. We must be clear that God of the Bible is the only God. Okay, so what? What does this mean for New Testament Christians? The command is, you shall have no other gods before me. So I want to talk about a blind spot for us potentially and maybe it's a, a much similar blind spot to the Israelites. They grew up in, with uh, cultural and religious uh, polytheism. It was around them, like worship of multiple gods. It was just very natural for them. I want to tell you, I think there's actually some cultural and religious air that we breathe that is kind of dangerous for us as we look at this first commandment. Religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is tempting, but Jesus' followers must not give in. So what does this mean for New Testament Christians? Well, religious pluralism is tempting for us, but Jesus' followers must not give in. So most Christians, for what it's worth, they don't believe that they get the first commandment wrong, typically. But every year, studies come out um, from various sources, whether it be Pew or whether it be Barna. They, they release these studies about the religious beliefs of Christians, people who attend church on a regular basis. And, and it's amazing the, the, the number of church people who miss this commandment. So let's, let's define religious pluralism real quick. Religious pluralism is a belief in two or more religions as equally valid or acceptable. The belief in two or more religions as equally valid or acceptable. So, so on the whole, we as you know, church people, as Christians, we probably wouldn't deny the first commandment. And that, that's a good thing. But functionally... Because of the cultural and religious air that we breathe, the worldview of religious pluralism that exists in our society, in our conversations with other people, or even in our own thoughts, we might be breaking this commandment. Right? We say things like, who am I to tell you what is true? We say things like, you know what, like, this is what I believe, but you know, everybody just has to figure out their own truth for themselves. Right? And statements like these, I want you to be careful because this is very hidden under the surface. Statements like these appear to be humble. They appear to be hospitable, but they violate the principle presented in the first commandment. So, uh, so I actually, I have a tool for you. I want to help us evaluate ourselves as it comes to this idea of religious pluralism. This is called the plurality scale. And so you could just look at this um, I believe in, so you start with multiple gods, full-blown polytheism, right? Like that would be the, the, the fullest extent of pluralism. I believe in multiple gods. But then you go down from there, and there's like varying degrees from polytheism to monotheism, 
right? So, so one of the more extreme degrees, I believe in one God that all faiths probably lead to, right? That's still, that's still breaking the first commandment, right? Or I, I know, you know, I know what I believe, but I recognize that other gods are real and helpful and maybe could even add something to my spirituality. Or I know what I believe, but, but I can't say that there aren't other gods. Like, who am I to say that there aren't other gods? Well, the problem with saying, who am I to say that there aren't other gods is God has told us that there aren't other gods. So when you say, who am I to say there aren't other gods? Well, apparently, at that point, you're lifting yourself up above God. Uh, or maybe you recognize there is one God, Yahweh, but, but you know what? I can see the validity of pieces of other religions, right? So maybe you say something like that, which interestingly enough, a guy named Solomon said something like that. First Kings 3.3, you want to talk about cognitive dissonance. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. He's still, you know what? Hey, there's validity here. I can still be a part of this. I can still do this. This is good and still worship God. So yeah, be careful. Uh, maybe at, at a lesser degree, I believe in one God, Yahweh, but live like something else is God, like functionally like there is another God. So this is, this is more of a self-evaluative question of you might know what you say with your mouth, but even the demons believe there is one God, right? What, what do you functionally live as your God? What do you functionally honor as your God? And that leads us all the way. So, so the, from zero to ten, to have no pluralism would be at zero singularity of belief in speech and practice in everything that you say that you would recognize, you know what, there is one authority. There is one source of meaning. There is one source of significance. There is only one true God, and he is the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. So uh, you can use that as kind of a means to evaluate. I give that to you as a tool. The second, so what, the second thing that we should take away from this this morning is New Testament Christians. The only God took on flesh to die for false God addicts. So Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. It says, For why, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Insert. In while we were still sinners, insert. While we were still seeking other gods, trusting their authority, glorifying them, finding our meaning in them. Even though the true God served us and upheld creation and gave us breath and gave us favor and showed us blessing while we had other gods, Christ died for us. You know what? If you recognize this morning that you have put something else in God's place, the amazing truth that we have is that God is not a dictator standing over you and waiting to burn you because of that, but he extends to you the opportunity to have his favor and his grace and his forgiveness in Jesus Christ. 
right? Because we're all false God addicts. Not one of us is righteous, but he, while we were still sinners, Christ came and he took on his body. The God of the universe became flesh and took on his body and his soul and his emotions, the pain of the wrath of God, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have favor and acceptance with God. So if you recognize this morning that you've taken something other than God and put it in God's place, like there is good news. God is extending to you the hand of fellowship. This morning, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to walk in joyful, life-giving relationship with Him, you can have His favor. Not because of anything that you've done, because we only show over and over and over again how unable we are to follow this commandment, but because of what Jesus did, that He kept the law perfectly and He went to the cross for our sakes. You can have joyful relationship with God if you would just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says that you will be saved. So I'd invite you this morning to just have great thankfulness and gratefulness of the truth that the only God became flesh to die for false God addicts. Number three, Christian. It is the opposite of arrogant to speak about God and his values with clarity. So, so you should just know that one of the most offensive things that you can do today is say, the God of the Bible is the only God. Do you know how exclusionary that statement is? Like you will be told when you say things like that, you will be told that you are arrogant. Uh, you will be asked who do you think you are to make such an exclusive claim? You will be told that you're disrespecting other people. You'll be called a bigot, right? Like these are all the potential things that could happen when you make this statement outside of the four walls of a church. But the incredible irony is that the people who are saying these things, they don't have a word from God revealed to them. They have no external source that they are relying upon. They're making moral judgments about what you're saying based on their own feelings, which means they're saying, I am making a judgment that you have no right to say what you're saying. The reason you're saying what you're saying is because God told you. Like their standard is themselves, your standard is God. So you might be called arrogant, but the reality is, is you're trusting the word of God. You're not trusting yourself. God has said these things about himself. God has revealed himself to us. If he did not reveal himself to us, we would be in a really sorry situation. But the joyful news is that he has actually told us who he is in his Bible. So when we speak with clarity about things that he says with clarity, it is not arrogant for us to do this. We are simply obeying the very words that he himself has spoken. And when you speak with clarity about these things, with love, with care and with concern to the people that you are speaking to? Here's the crazy thing. Like the Holy Spirit might actually bring conviction of sin. Yeah, the Holy Spirit might actually bring about repentance. The Holy Spirit might actually like make a person aware of their need for forgiveness uh, in, in the face of the one holy God. The Holy Spirit might actually draw someone to Jesus when you speak with clarity about these things. So don't be afraid to speak what God has already spoken. Would you pray with me, please?
God, I thank you for this worship service this morning. I thank you that um, both at home and here physically, we are gathered together recognizing who the one true God is. Even, even our Sunday morning worship service says something about what we believe about the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus came and he died and he rose again and we are orienting our schedules and our time around this truth. God, I thank you for the joy that we have to, to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. I thank you for the joy that we have not just to be forgiven, but to, to be joined with the throngs of witnesses, people who love you, who have also been forgiven by your blood, both now and those who have passed on before us, a great cloud of witnesses, all recognizing one thing, that this world has tried to tell us that there are other gods. But Jesus has shown us the one true God. And so, we look to him for our identity, for our meaning, for our significance, for our authority. We trust him to tell us what is right. We look to him for direction. He is the one true God. Lord, our, I also recognize that our hearts and our formation in this culture makes us people who are potentially prone to disbelieve this if not explicitly, then even functionally. So Lord, I pray that you would, first of all, help us to revel in the grace that Jesus gives us. And second of all, that you would lead us to repentance. Lord, when we see places where we are functionally disbelieving this commandment, that we would stop. That we would hear your voice say, no more. God, in seeing your goodness and your kindness to us, that you would lead us to repentance, that we might better glorify your name. In Jesus' mighty name.